Welcome to The Brainstorm, a podcast and video series from ARK Invest. Tune in every week as we react to the latest in innovation and reflect on how short-term news impacts our long-term views. To learn more, visit arc-invest.com. ARK Investment Management LLC is an SEC-registered investment advisor. ARK and Public are unaffiliated entities and do not have a relationship with respect to either firm marketing or selling the products or services of the other. And therefore, ARK disclaims responsibility for any loss that may be incurred by public's clients or customers. The information provided in this show is for informational purposes only and should not be used as the basis for any investment decision and is subject to change without notice. It does not constitute either explicitly or implicitly any provision of services or products by ARK and investors should determine for themselves whether a particular investment management service is suitable for their investment needs. All statements made regarding companies or securities are strictly beliefs and points of view held by ARC and or show guests and are not endorsements by ARC of any company or security or recommendations by ARC to buy, sell, or hold any security. Historical results are not indications of future results. Certain of the statements contained in the show may be statements of future expectations and other forward-looking statements that are based on ARC's current views and assumptions and involve known and unknown risks and uncertainties that could cause actual results, performance, or events to differ materially from those expressed or implied in such statements. ARC assumes no obligation to update any forward-looking information. ARC and its clients, as well as its related persons, may, but do not necessarily, have financial interests in securities or issuers that are discussed. Certain information was obtained from sources that ARC believes to be reliable. However, ARC does not guarantee the accuracy or completeness of any information obtained from any third party. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 37 of The Brainstorm. Today, I'm joined with Andrew Kim and David Puel. We're going to be going over Walmart potentially acquiring Vizio, as well as the ECB's campaign against Bitcoin. But first, let's start with Walmart acquiring Vizio, potentially acquiring Vizio. Andrew, why don't you tee this up for us? Sure. So last Tuesday, Walmart announced its plans to acquire Vizio, which is a budget-friendly line of TVs. Um, well, it offers a, a line of budget-friendly TVs and a operating system known as the SmartCast TV. And this would enable Walmart to more effectively um, connect with households across the U.S. Um uh, through its own proprietary line of TVs um, and more tightly integrate that with its native uh, demand side platform, uh, Walmart Connect, which is its uh, advertising unit. Yeah, it's interesting so. that Walmart is getting into this space. Um, the numbers here on Vizio, at least, Vizio has 18 million active accounts and around 500 direct advertising partners. This is what was disclosed in the press release. Um, and Walmart is one of the largest retailers in the country and sells a significant amount of televisions each year. And they have made other partnerships in the space, notably uh, Roku and their On platform. So Walmart runs a brand of TVs called On, O-N-N, and they use Roku's operating system to power that. Obviously, that is now being called into question. And I think Roku and the story behind Roku is being called into question by many. But I wanted to 
ask you, Andrew, what are your thoughts there? I have some opinions here, so let's let's go back and forth. Uh, just what you think uh, around the potential threat of Vizio and Walmart now entering in the CTV space, not just for Roku, but also Amazon, Google, Apple. You know, this is a very large industry and growing rapidly, and it's you know clear why Walmart wants to have a more significant presence in the space. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think when Roku first announced its line of as first party like labeled uh, TVs back in, I guess, January of this or, or uh, sorry, January of last year, was yeah. it? Yeah. 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 Um, like it, it basically signaled to us that Roku is like properly hedging and already thinking about hedging its risk to any single distribution partner. Right. And, and Roku is on the shelves at various uh, large distribution partners such as you know Target, Best Buy, Costco, and um, while Roku has historically depended on Walmart for the distribution of its budget-friendly smart TVs in the past, uh, Roku is in a much better and more diverse diversified position than before. So, from a shelf space uh, consideration, I think um, it's okay, right? I mean, yes. It, it, like Roku might lose shelf space to Vizio in Walmart, but um, it also comes uh, begs us to ask, I, uh, begs third-party distribution uh, platforms to ask now that Vizio is no longer an agnostic TV, right? It's now tied directly to Walmart. Will will they carry it? Will Amazon carry Vizio? Will will Target carry Vizio, right? Um, because it would put them in direct competition, well, favoring direct competition on its own platform. Um, and I guess on the advertising side, scale matters, right? Roku has say, 80 million active accounts. Um, Vizio um, chugging along at 18 million, which is still you know uh, impressive scale with a lot of data. And I'm sure um, Walmart was attracted to that, but in the aggregate, I would imagine that most advertisers are very much interested in continuing to reach the Roku household. So I think even from an advertising perspective, um, they're going to be okay. Yeah. And it's, I think you brought up a few interesting points here. One, just on distribution. And you, I think you're correct. It was January of last year at uh, CES where Roku began to announce their branded line of first party televisions. And that was originally in partnership exclusively at Best Buy. Now they've since expanded that. And so those first party televisions will not only be sold in Best Buy, but Amazon and Costco as well. So they are, you know, hedging their distribution risk in branding their own televisions, building their own televisions, and then distributing through other major retailers. Um, and I think you're right to say that, you know, one thing that has uh, always attracted us to this story around Roku is this idea around the Switzerland uh, and being that party within the CTV space that isn't tied to any single, um, you know, large tech company or major retailer. So when you when you talk about, you know, Vizio might gain shelf space in Walmart, but they're likely to lose out in Target and Amazon. I can't, you know, that that is actually how the the space has shaped up today, where you know Amazon Fire TVs are not sold in other major retailers because of the threat that Amazon 
imposes on them from a retail perspective generally. So there is that kind of awkward dynamic at play between these retailers and their, you know, sole solutions in the space. I think when we look at the story and what is really important to winning in the CTV space, and this is something that's, you know, largely talked about, it's you need scale, you need engagement, and then you need monetization. And we look at, you know, who has the largest scale today, it's not Vizio, it's Roku, Amazon Fire. Those are the two major players. Um, then you look at engagement. If you look at the engagement hours on Roku, it's 100 billion plus hours streamed. Um, so this is significant scale and significant engagement. And then you're talking about uh, first party data and the advantages that come with it from a monetization angle. So I think the story really you know, makes sense once you have all three of those. And then just understanding the backdrop of the CTV space this is still a very nascent space. Um, if you look at some of the numbers we were given, and I'm going to read these off so I don't get any of the figures wrong. But one, you have this shift from linear into streaming happening at the current moment, and it has been happening at a more at a, at a faster clip since COVID. Um, so we've heard about cord cutting, and now we're starting to see advertisers uh, follow through as well. But during the fourth quarter, um, when we see uh, global hours um, streamed on the Roku platform, that was up almost 21% and 63% for the Roku channel. But if you look at linear TV hours, that was down almost 16% on a year over year basis. So from an engagement standpoint, you're seeing this share shift. But then when you look at the amount of dollars being spent in these individual ecosystems, one, you have 60% of TV time now happening on streaming specifically, um, but only 29% of TV budgets are directed towards CTV and streaming. So there is still this large gap that needs to close between where the eyeballs are and where the dollars being spent are. And I think that's really important to understanding why we think this space is so attractive long term. The you know the linear TV market is a 60 70 billion dollar a year industry and we believe all of that is tech is going to flow over into the CTV space. But because CTV is built on digital rails, it allows you to personalize like social media companies. It allows you to target in a, in a, in a better fashion, more, more personalization, better targeting. Everything that comes with digital advertising is now being built in the CTV space. So not only is the opportunity just to cannibalize all of the dollars being spent in the linear TV space, it's what can you take beyond that into the digital advertising space. So growing market share as a whole, I think is the longer term opportunity. And we think, you know, just to, to, to settle this and, and, and give kind of the, the cohesive narrative, the TV operating systems, Roku, Vizio, Amazon Fire, they now sit in the same position that cable operators sat two decades ago, where they were the endpoint distributors for content. That means they're the gateway to your TV viewing experience. And that is a very powerful position to be sitting in because you can operate like an app store. So we think Roku, Amazon, Vizio, they're going to be operating app stores and they're going to have similar take rates that we see in the mobile app ecosystem, but that's now going to be ported over into the television ecosystem. And so it's an extremely attractive opportunity long-term. Obviously, there's a ton of risk, moving pieces, very dynamic space as we're seeing, right? Everyone wants a piece of this pie, 
because the pie is growing so quickly. And it's a massive opportunity from advertising and from just influence, being in the household, being the primary screen in the household outside of the mobile phone is extremely important. And so that's why you're seeing retailers like Walmart want to, wanting to have influence here and Amazon and Google and 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 Apple. And it's, you know, an interesting uh, you know, case study here. Roku has been kind of the underdog story throughout this because you've had tech giants like Amazon, Google, and Apple breathing down Roku's necks since the beginning of the story. And yet Roku has been able to edge all of them out and actually grow its market share, um, you know, since its founding. And now it's in 80 million households and it's the number one selling TV operating system for the last five years in the U.S. And it's install base. And this goes back to the whole, you know, portion on scale. It's larger than the six largest traditional pay TV pro providers combined. That's, you know, we're talking about unprecedented numbers in terms of television distribution in the US. But this is also a global story, right? The difference between uh, over the top or CTV is you don't have to go around the country laying cable to enter into homes. It is just, you know, you're, if you're connected to Wi Fi broadband, you're instantly you have access to everything that CTV uh, offers. So it's an extremely uh, uh, large opportunity because it's not just uh, US, it's it's global as well. I know that was a lot. <laughs> No, no, no. I think you raised really great points all throughout, but like branding matters, right? I, I, I hate that. I feel like the market discounts budget TVs as like a bare bones commodity. But if you look at Roku's advantage and leadership as seen in the um, sales figures, right? Number one OS in three countries. Um, it's, it shows us that branding matters. The Roku brand is very much ubiqu ubiquitous, right? And um, it's not as if consumers are completely nonchalant about um, purchasing, about um, deciding what kind of uh, smart TV to purchase once they step into a store. And uh, we agree with the notion that even if Walmart, um, you know, significantly decreases shelf space allocated to Roku uh, in favor of Vizio, consumers will continue to look for Roku uh, operating systems. And it's not just a branding issue, it's an overall operating system superiority issue too, right? In that the Roku experience um, is unmatched, I think, um, with respect to how uh, smart other smart TVs operate. And I would encourage listeners to just search up Roku versus Vizio, go to any subreddit, and you will see that people um, by far prefer Roku over Vizio because of all the issues that SmartCast has presented, whether it be connecting to external devices, um, uh, doing um, uh, like AirPlay or or all these different services, right? Or, or, or compatibility with different streaming apps as well. Um, it seems as though Roku is um, at a much larger advantage from a uh, just technical perspective as well. So I would imagine that with this acquisition, Walmart is inheriting a lot of tech debt to consider. Um, and I mean, we'll see how they execute, but I think they're in a much more disadvantaged position than um, I guess initial market reactions would warrant. 
Yeah, and I think you bring up a very interesting point, and this is, I think, where we'll end and move over to David because um, I want to be mindful of everyone's time. It It is it is our thesis that the operating system brand, so the Roku OS, SmartCast, uh, Amazon Fire, that now carries more weight with consumers than the television brand, so the OEM partner. So TCL is the Hisense, the Sharp, Philips, Samsung, and some of these have their own operating systems built in, right? Roku has its own first party, but then it also works with third party. Um, that is a shift that we think has been taking place and is going to be where you see the real share shifts and winners is at the operating system level. It's the consumer seeking out, as you said, Andrew, seeking out the operating system, not the television, right? They want the Roku operating system. They want to see Roku City. They want that ease of use navigation UI UX that comes with a sleek operating system. That is what we're we're going to see. It's, you know, it's it's been played out in mobile, right? People are very attached to the iOS operating system. Um, you know, maybe it, it is also the hardware elements to it, but it is mostly the operating system. And we think that's now playing out in CTV. So I think, yeah, that's a it's a it's a very important point for for everyone to understand because this isn't what was happening in television before it was, you know, an entirely different space, but this is now we're bringing television into the digital age. So, um, David, we're, we're going to kick it over to you. Tell us what's going on with the ECB. They're not fans of Bitcoin. What, what's up with that? Yeah. So last week, the European central bank published the last of a series, or at the very least, the second of um, a series of blogs criticizing Bitcoin and its core value proposition. Um, it kind of re regurgitates the last blog post from November. And in essence, it, it bashes Bitcoin in, by, in, th in three dimensions, you could say. The first one is uh, claiming that Bitcoin is not uh, digital money because it's slow. Uh, and in addition, it's used mostly, uh, or at least that's the spirit of the, the block piece. It's mostly used for criminal activity and money laundering. Then number two, Bitcoin is, an, is not a viable or a wise investment, given that it has no dividends, no class flows, and... Uh, if comparing to other commodities, it has no, uh, it's a non-productive asset, right? And number three, Bitcoin, the, the consensus mechanism of Bitcoin, proof of work, meaning the mining, the mining use of electricity to protect the network um, via hash rate. Uh, their claim is that this pollutes the environment and will continue to do so at an increasing rate into the future. Uh, given the historical um, rise of hash, Bitcoin hash rates um, over the last 15 years. Um, the post was highly uh, excoriated and, and debunked on, on, on Twitter. Uh, it got one of the, you know, the, the permanent commentaries on, on the original noted? tweets. Co correct, correct. It got one of those uh, pretty much citing... Um, you know, contrarian sources, perhaps even more valid sources uh, on their overall claims. Uh, and it also goes to one of our own publications, published in mid-2021, 
Uh, it's called debunking common Bitcoin myths. We already kind of address um, exactly this and, and a few other um, talking points that most skeptics have done um, on Bitcoin historically. Um, just to give you a, a high level of the way we at ARC see those, uh, you know, the, the counterclaim to, to those initial uh, points given by the ECB. Uh, first off, we, we believe that Bitcoin is, uh, still remains a censorship-resistant network, which is pretty essential, especially in developing nations that have no access to, to the uh, proper back banking system and to stronger currencies like the USD. Um, tackling the, the topic of illicit activity as of the report of 2023 by Chain Analysis, uh, it's 0.34% uh, of all crypto trading volume. It's used, estimated to be used for illicit activity, including money laundering. Um, so in our view, that's extremely low, especially if you compare it to some estimations of how much cash, you, uh, dollar cash is used for illicit activity. I mean, you know, you, you have the 2 to 5% uh, estimated by the United Nations for money laundering, and that's just money laundering, not um, other um, illicit activity and other like much more um, aggressive estimations like the one um, I believe it's um, a Harvard economist called Kenneth Rogoff he wrote a book called The Curse of Cash uh, where he by a process of elimination calculates that up to a third of the dollar cash in the world is used for illicit activity where at, at the very least just uh, non-KYC activity, right? Meaning, you know, tax avoidance, et cetera, et cetera. So by any standard, um, we, we think the claim is quite um, unimpressive and uh, a little bit disingenuous in our view. Mm-hmm. David, I want to ask you, we actually, we had you seen on a few weeks back and we asked him this question, which is, you know, we hear a lot of these um, common Bitcoin myths and, you know, these, uh, these criticisms of Bitcoin in the network of those out there, what do you think is the most valid? And then how would you debunk it? Um, like in your opinion, what is the most valid criticism of Bitcoin? And then how do you respond when you hear it? That's a great question. And the, I think two, the top two that have some validity, but on a longer term basis, uh, one is um, Bitcoin is not private enough, private enough. Therefore, it may lose fungibility, meaning since you can track the transactions quite a- accurately, you know, elliptic and analysis have such an infrastructure and know-how of how to track um, illicit or any activity in the network for forensics and on-chain archaeology at any given time. Um the, there's a scenario where increasingly so some of the Bitcoin may become quote unquote tainted or um, can can be traded at a discount because it has been touched by an entity in Russia or Iran or North Korea. Um, now, uh, perhaps the counterclaim to that is you would have an, a scenario where you wouldn't have that discount or perhaps like... Um, 
bilocated market globally, where you have, let's say, U.S. allies or unsanctioned entities trading with each other at a normal price, and then sanctioned Bitcoin, we'll call it like poison Bitcoin, trading in its own ecosystem uh, between the entities that are sanctioned by the U.S. or something like that. Or uh, even in addition to that, you have what is considered the poison Bitcoin, perhaps losing some value and staying dormant at the end of it, and therefore subtracting from the total supply and and, um, establishing through time a little bit of supply shock that makes it so that incentives, since that Bitcoin is pretty much tainted for all time, or at least until the U.S. releases the sanctions, it becomes dormant and therefore not traded, and it's subtracted from the total circulating supply. Mm-hmm. That's one, and the other one is uh, quantum, quantum um, potentially breaking um, encryption. Now, this is a, a topic for <laughs> a much longer discussion, but in essence, the claim is you know quantum uh, is going to be uh, um, successful in breaking Bit- Bitcoin's cryptography. Um, now, there's two vectors for uh, for attacking um, for a quantum entity attacking Bitcoin. One is uh, the proof of work mechanism or the mining uh, side of things. Um, in our view, that's very unlikely given the, the extremely high amount of hash rate that Bitcoin has today and most mm-hmm. likely will continue to have into the future. Um, but even you know, even on top of that, there's mechanisms when you can enhance proof of work um, uh, into to have more resistance, again, uh, a quantum miner. The other part is more worrisome, meaning the um, elliptic curve that is embedded in the signature scheme of Bitcoin, living um, by some estimates above 20% of the supply, including the Satoshi coins uh, and unprocessed transactions, um, vulnerable to a quantum attack. Now, that's also we expect a little bit down the line into the future. And on top of that, you can also solve that in which the network could fork. Um, we have enough time for that and fork into um, a system that is quantum resistant, um, meaning instead of using elliptic curve as your cryptographic security, you use hash-based or lattice-based, most likely hash-based um, public key cryptography to protect the network um, against that sort of attack. And then we'll we'll end on this question. I want to flip the prior question on its head. What do you think is the least appreciated or what does the market um, miss when understanding the potential of Bitcoin? So what is the least appreciated value that Bitcoin holds in your eyes today? Um, I know it's a popular aspect of Bitcoin, uh, but I, th- I still think it's underappreciated, which is the, um, the monetary policy of it. Uh, it's deflationary, disinflationary quality, and the way it keeps restricting supply from the from the system um, over a period of about, about you know, a hundred thirty forty years or so. Um, I think this has impact in the asset and its adoption that people just keep mis misunderstanding. Uh, mm-hmm. To a great extent, um, they have no notion on, on how a disinflationary asset compares to a, an inflationary one, especially as a currency um, like the 
the U.S. dollar. Interesting. Okay. David, Andrew, thank you so much. And everyone that has listened, tuned in, watching on YouTube, we appreciate it. As always, uh, that is our show. Sam will be back next week. Um, But thank you, everyone.